discovered this morning, we confess our need for you. God, we know that without divine intervention in us, we are without hope. So we thank you that your word tells us that you have already worked on our behalf. You sent Christ to, to live the life we committed. You sent him to die on our behalf as a penalty for our sins. You sent him to redeem us and to make us right with you. So we thank you that his work on our behalf secures for us the Holy Spirit who helps us understand your word. So God, we ask that now as we seek to learn more about who we are in Christ, as we seek to learn more about the, the many, the infinite spiritual blessings you have blessed us with in Christ. We ask that your spirit would equip our hearts and equip our minds wonderful things in you. We thank you for Christ. And it's in him we have all these blessings. In his name we pray. Amen. So this these verses we just read, even though in, in our Bibles it's about eleven verses. Hey Richard, can you turn off the monitor? Should be the control room back. Sorry, I can hear myself back. So these eleven verses, they're they're really just one big long sentence. And we started last week with this this kind of opening line of that sentence, where Paul talks about how we, as Christians, as people who have believed in Christ, as people who have trusted in Christ, that that we're actually in Christ in some kind of mysterious way through our relationship with him. And because of that, God has given us all these blessings, every spiritual blessing we have in Christ. And then in the kind of the rest of this sentence, Paul is going to start to unpack what those blessings are. And so today we're going to talk about the first one that he mentions. We're going to talk about the fact that we are chosen in Christ and, and what that means for us. But also we want to talk about what it means for us practically today. And so, because we're talking about things like being chosen and words like predestined, that means that today we're going to hit some issues that have caused some fairly significant debates in the history of the church. But before we talk about all of that stuff, let's just, let's just look together at what the, the text actually says. Notice that Paul begins verse 4 with, with two words, at least in the ESP, with two words, even after. If you're reading another translation, it might say just as, or for, or, or something like that. And what, what the translations are trying to bring out here is that the Paul has logically connected what he's going to say in verse 4 with what he's just said in verse 3. He's saying that what I'm about to tell you is related to what I just told you. So, last week he told us that we have all these spiritual blessings. This week he's telling us what those blessings are. And this is phrase here, even as the kind of technical English term for this kind of grammar, which is boring, you know, grammar boring, but it's called a, a concessive state, which means that it's something that's kind of unexpected. So if I were to say, 
even though Sean Freeman punched me in the face, I still like him. I'm saying that, 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 that last statement, that I still like Sean, even though he punched me in the face, it's surprising that there's a connection between those two things. And what the ESV is trying to bring out is that the fact that God has chosen us, God has predestined us, could be surprising that that's one of those blessings. Because a lot of times we don't look at it. A lot of times when, when people talk about things like predestination or things like election or things like God choosing us, they don't talk about it as if it's this big, happy thing that we're all excited about. They don't talk about it as if it's this huge blessing that God has given us. But what Paul is bringing out is that it is. It is one of the blessings we've been blessed with. And specifically, we need to understand what it means that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so to kind of get at that answer, we need to find three things. We need to find the significance of God's choice, the reason for that choice, and then the purpose for that choice. The significance, the reason, and the purpose. The significance, what we mean there is, is simply, what does this mean? What does it mean that God chose these people before the foundation of the world? That's what it says here. This word that he uses for choose. Elsewhere in the Bible, it comes up as another word, election or elected. That's where we get our English word for election, which is when we choose who we want to serve in some sort of office. Richard really wants me to talk about, you know, the political campaigns that are coming up, but I'm just not going to do it. He means, right here, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, what Paul is getting at is that somewhere, somewhere, way back when, before God created anything, God made this choice of specific people who would be included in Christ. He goes on in verse 5, it says he predestined. That just means he decided beforehand. He made some sort of decision ahead of time about where, who would be adopted as sons and daughters, of Christ, of God, in Christ. And so what he's saying is that this choice that God made, this decision that God made ahead of time, has some sort of bearing on our salvation in Christ. That's what these verses mean. And I want to say this right here as, as clearly as I possibly can. Those things are not affordable. That's of the plain understanding of what Paul says. is that God made this choice. He made this decision ahead of time, before the foundation of the world, who would be included in Christ. Now, before you get all freaked out, what is up for debate is, is why he made that choice and how he made that choice. But we can't say that he didn't actually make it. I hear people all the time who say, I don't believe in election, or I don't believe in predestination. And that's just silly. It's silly because there are words that occur in the Bible. It's like saying, I don't believe in blessing, or I don't believe in holiness, or I don't believe in personal pronouns. They're in there. The thing that we get to decide is not whether we believe in it or don't believe in it, but we get to decide what do we think it means. How does God how does God speak us? And that's what's up for discussion, not whether or not he does it, because he says he does it. And if this book means anything to us, we need to believe what it says. 
whether we like it or not. And so, what we need to move on to is the reason and the purpose for his choice. Let's talk about the reason first. What was the reason behind this choice? Why, why did God choose who would be saved? Why did he predestined who would be adopted? I think there's really two options here. The first option that we can say, and, and that some people say, is that God chose people before the foundation of the world who would be saved in Christ simply based on what he wanted to do. Simply based on his own good pleasure, his will. Because he wanted to do it, that's what he decided to do. That's, that's option one. Option two is that God made that decision based on his, his foreknowledge, which means that God, back before the foundation of the world, looked into the future and he saw who I would be and who you would be and what kind of choices we made and what kind of things we would do, and he based his decision then on what he knew we would do in the future. those are there, there, there really only two options that the scripture presents to us. And so let's look at our passage and see kind of which one of those options makes sense. I think there's two phrases that are really important for us to reconcile with those. The first is down at the end of verse 5 where it says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What Paul's getting at there is that, that God made that choice because that's what lined up with his will. God's will is what God desires uh, and determines what happened in the world. The first phrase. The second phrase that I think is important for us is at the end of verse 4. Sorry, in the, in the middle of verse 4, where he says, before the foundation of the world. Paul's giving us the time of that choice. That means that before anything existed, before people existed, before I existed, before you existed, before we could do anything right or wrong, before we could believe one way or the other, before we could think this way or that way about election and predestination, God made that choice. And because of these two things, we've got to decide that God looked into the future. And, and see what we would do and make those choices or did he make those choices simply based on what he wanted to do based on his will. Personally, and this isn't necessarily the position of the church, not necessarily the position of the elders, this is, this is what I do. I think that God made that choice simply based on his will. The reason why I think that is because who we see God is in Scripture is this guy who is completely in control of everything. He's not ruled by anything outside of himself. Whatever he decides to do, he does. Whatever he wants to do, he does. He says, let there be light. Light happens. He says, let there be plants. Plants happen. He doesn't have to ask someone's permission. He doesn't have to get it approved by a committee. He says it, and it happens. And so the problem with, with, with any other kind of view than saying God made the decision and that's what happened is we're saying that there's some power, some thing, some person outside of God who's got to run this decision. I'm saying that if it's based on God's foreknowledge of my future choice, and I know foreknowledge is a big word, but if I'm saying it's based on his knowledge of what I would do in the future, I'm saying really 
that my decisions matter more than Brad's. God can only do what, what I let him do. He can only do what I allow him to do. If I don't want him to do something, he can't do it. I think that what Paul says here, before the foundation of the world, according to the purpose of his will, makes it clear to me that, Paul, that God bases his choice in election, his choice in predestination, solely based on his will. That's what he wants to do. That's what he does. And we're going to get to some of the objections against this view in a little bit. So hang on if you've got it. Before we get there, let's move on and talk about the purpose of his choice. Why does God elect? Why does God choose? Why does God predestine? But he gives us the purpose in verse 4. He tells us that he does this, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the purpose. Why he does it. The question is, does he do that so that we will be future holy and blameless? Or so that we will be holy and blameless right now. Did God choose some people so that they would be holy and blameless in the present, or did he choose them so they would be holy and blameless in the future? A lot of people make a big deal about which one it is. But I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I don't think that it's an either or. I think it's a, it's a both and. Because we know that because of what God has done for us in Christ, because of what God is going to continue to do for us in Christ, he is going to make us holy and blameless. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, which I think we have a, a slide on. It says that in Christ, because of what Christ has done for us, because God made him to be sin, even though we hadn't sinned, because Christ pays the penalty for our sin, he actually, at the same time, gives us his righteousness. In him, in Christ, we become the righteousness of God. That means that in Christ, we actually become holy and blameless. But the question is, is there anyone here who is holy and blameless? Right, nobody in, in the present, in this life, this side of the end, none of us are going to be perfect. We're all going to have sin. We're all going to have imperfection. We're all going to have blame on us. And so there's this, this tension between who we are in Christ and who we will be in Christ and who we are right now. And so I think this what Paul's getting at here when he says that God made this choice so that we would be holy and blameless, so that we would pursue that kind of lifestyle. We would seek holiness. We would seek blamelessness, recognizing that we don't have it now, but we will have it then. And so it's both. That's why God made this choice, so that we would be holy and blameless. Let's talk now about some of the common objections to this kind of thinking. These ideas of, of election and predestination and what we don't like about them and the way they make us uncomfortable and the way they upset us. I'd say that the most common objection that people make is that it's unfair. Right? It's unfair that God would choose some people for good things of blessing and eternal life and salvation and choose other people to not have it. End up 
in a life apart from Christ. So how can we respond to that? I think that the first thing we should recognize is that when we react that way, when we look at this and we say that it's not fair for that reason, we're viewing the world in a way that, that doesn't really line up with Scripture. Because when people have that in their mind, what they're thinking is that, that before the foundation of the world, when God gives us, he's kind of sitting in this big room up in heaven with all these people, and he just kind of takes some people out of this big group of, of morally neutral people, and he puts some people in the good pile, and he puts some people in the bad pile. It's kind of arbitrarily different. And we would say, it's not fair for him to do that. But the problem with that is that that's not what Scripture shows. Scripture shows us that the reality is, is that everyone is bad. I'm bad, you're bad, apart from Christ, we are without hope. Apart from Christ, we won't do good things. Me, without Jesus, in my life, if you give me the choice between a good thing and a bad thing, I'm going to choose the bad thing every single time except when I choose the good thing for bad reasons. Because that's just who we are, apart from Christ. And so you don't have this, this group of people that become either good or bad. You have all these bad people. And God, in His grace, and in His mercy, saves some. And so it's, it's not that it's not fair. But at the same time, I think that we should recognize that it's not. Not from a kind of emotional, it's just not right for God to do that. But when we see in Scripture that it is theologically correct, when we see in Scripture that it is biblically correct, even though we see that, we should still feel that it's unfair. Right? What, what makes me better than my neighbor? What makes me better than the lost people in my family? What makes me better than someone else who God didn't choose? Absolutely nothing. That should bother us, right? I'm not saying it should bother us and cause us to doubt who God is, cause us to doubt that He's good, cause us to doubt that His Word is true. But it should stir us and cause us to both seek to share the gospel more and seek to pray more, it should break us for those people around us who don't know Christ. Because we know that we're not anything special. We know that we haven't done anything special to, to earn His love or earn His forgiveness or earn His grace. And so it should bother us. We should see that it's, it's, it's not fair in the way we define fair. Not for emotional reasons, but for biblical reasons. It should bother us that this is true. Another common objection people make is that if this is true, if God really made this choice way back before the beginning of time, then our choices don't matter. Or they're not real choices. I'm just, everything I do, if I stick my arm out here, if I stick my arm out here, I'm doing that because God determined a long time ago that I was doing that because I really like the way it works, but if we think that way, we fail to understand both who God is and who He is. As I said before, without Christ, we're bad. 
And so, when we think about people rejecting threats, God isn't making them do it. They do that because that's what they want to do. It's kind of crazy when you think about the fact that atheists have so many problems with a concept like terror. God doesn't exist right there in that. These people don't want to be with God anyway. Why is it unfair for them not to get to be with Him? Does that make sense? We make the choices we want to make because that's who we are. I and mean, then what happens is God comes along and He changes who we are so that we start to choose the good thing. Me without Christ will never choose Christ. But when He opens my eyes and shows me what salvation in Him really means, that's what I'm going to want to choose. He doesn't make me choose it. He allows me to, and I do. When uh, students were moving in at HLG, uh, a group of us from BC went up to the school, and we were sitting outside Crouch, uh, and, and Zeke Freeman was there, and he was running around doing crazy stuff. And one of the RAs from Crouch had a bag of and and uh, he gave Zeke some. And then, I mean, it was, it was like Zeke became this other person entirely. He was consumed with this, this desire, this intent, this yearning for talking to him. It doesn't matter what, like he had cookies, all kinds of stuff on his table, and he wanted cotton candy, that's all that he wants. And he wasn't really content again, but it was absolutely gone anymore. And I think that that's kind of a picture of how God works in us and calls us to want Him instead of something else. Zeke, if there would have been an infinite amount of cotton candy, would have just kept eating it and eating it and eating it and eating it and eating it until he was sick. And it's not like somebody would have had to hold him down and like shove it in his mouth. Nobody forced him to. But that's what he would have done. It's the same way for us with God. Once we finally see who He is, once He reveals Himself to us in that way, that's what we want. Not forced to make our choice. It's what we desire. Another major objection, and probably the most significant one, is that God desires everyone to be saved. And that's true. First, First Timothy uh, two four says. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3.9 says that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's right. God says that He wants, He desires, He wills that everybody will be saved. And that's what we should desire. So the question is, if, if that's what He wants, that's what He wills, why doesn't that happen? Right in this chamber. I think that first we need to recognize that God's word says that He desires a lot of other things too. You know, murder, lie, steal, commit adultery, you know, uh, covet. First Thessalonians says the will of God is that you would abstain from sexual immorality. Right? 
picture presents God's will in a lot of different ways. And, and we know that the reality is, is that people do kill. People do steal. People do commit adultery. People are exceptionally immoral. Those things happen in the world. And so we have to answer the question, is it just that God can't really make those things happen? He's just not powerful. He's just not in control. He's, he's lost control of the world, and we're just down here doing whatever we want, and he, he can't do anything about it. I personally don't think that's the case. I think that what we see in Scripture is that God reveals His will to us. He says, this is what I want to happen. Right? Don't kill, don't steal, don't crack. I want everybody to be saved. But what we also see is that He has some secret plan for the world that we don't know, whereby those things don't happen. Sometimes He moves people to repentance through things like that. Sometimes He allows sin to further along his plan. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. And the point is, is that the people that make that objection, the people that would say, God desires everybody to be saved, they don't have any better answer than I do as to why it doesn't happen. They don't. The answer is, is that God is beyond our understanding. We don't know why he chose to do it this way. We don't know why he, he chose me and he didn't choose someone else. We don't know why his plan came about this way, but what we do know is that this is what his word says his plan is. And so we can either choose to, to have faith in this, choose to have trust in this, or we can just throw up our hands and say, I just have nobody to do He's out of control. So the world is just spinning away from him, and we can do whatever we want then. God is in control. And I think that we see that in passages like this, where it says as clearly as it possibly can that he made this choice before the foundation of the world. He decided ahead of time who would be included in the people of God. And Paul, when he writes this word, he knows what it means. Because he's a Jew. He, he grew up in the chosen people of God. He grew up in the elect people of God. He wasn't just using it idly. He knew what it meant. I don't think we should pretend that these are easy to understand. That they are easy to reconcile. That there's a, a clear meaning of everything in Scripture. These are tough to understand. They're tough to wrestle with. They're things that we should think about. They're things that should make us tense and stress us out when we see them in Scripture. I think that we're still left with the responsibility of believing what the text says. And so let's talk real quick about how we can apply this. How can this connect to our life today? The first thing, is that this should cause us to realize that we're not plan B. Sometimes people will talk about the fact that, you know, God didn't really know what was going to happen in the garden. God didn't really plan to send Christ out of He didn't really plan to, to use us and save us in this way to reach the world. But Paul says that this thing happened, this choice, this decision happened before the foundation of the world. I mean before Adam and Eve were in the garden. 
kind of like things went south there, and then God said, I've got to come up with a plan. This is the plan all along. That he would reach the world through the church and through his people in the Old Testament. This is how he chose to reveal himself to us. The second thing with that is that it should give us more of a desire and more confidence when we do share the gospel. Because what this tells us is that it's not up to us. It's not up to me to go out and save people. I don't, I don't save anyone. God saves people. People don't save themselves. God saves people. And so when we go out and we share the gospel and we witness to what Christ has done, we can take comfort in the fact that he's the one who's doing the work. We're just being faithful to open our mouth and back. And we need to be faithful and open our mouth and back. We've been entrusted with the message of salvation, and we need to go out and share it. Because his word says that that's how the gospel spreads. A lot of times people will say, well, those people that believe in election, those people that believe in predestination, they don't ever share the gospel. Well, if anybody like that exists, they don't believe in these things, or they would share the gospel. Because a belief in the fact that God is the one who makes these things happen would cause us to have more confidence when we share the gospel. A lot of times we think that successful evangelism is when, you know, Billy Graham preaches and like 30,000 people get saved. But this guy named Don Whitney who wrote a book on spiritual discipline, he says that successful evangelism is accurately sharing the truth of the gospel. That's all we have to do. We don't have to go out and save 30,000 people. We have to go out, open our mouths, and talk about the gospel actually. And God will take care of us. And obviously, if we do it miserably, the problem will go right. But the next time, it'll go better. So be faithful this week to share the gospel. Take those opportunities, because we know that God is causing these things to happen, not us. Another thing we should do, I think, is to give us more confidence personally for our future growth in Christ. I think that it's easy for, for Christians to get discouraged and think, you know, I've been a believer for five years and I'm still struggling with the same thing. I'm still struggling, so I'm still battling this sin or that, that sin, and just get really discouraged and compare themselves to other people and, and do all kinds of affordable things. But believing that, that God set us apart, that God made this truth not based on who we are or our actions or what we do, we can recognize that he's not going to do that and then just leave us alone. He's not going to give us that kind of grace of salvation and cause us to believe in him and open our eyes and see him and then just say, well, you're on your own now. He continues to give us grace. He continues to to build us up in salvation. Titus, uh, in the 2, 11 or 12, says that the grace of God trains us. It, it motivates us. It helps us. It equips us to say no to sin and to live godly lives. And so the same grace that saves us in election and in predestination and in adoption equips us to, to live out the gospel well. Our, our sanctification, our growth in Christ, it doesn't really depend on us anything more than our salvation work. God does that work too. It says that we walk in works that He prepared ahead of time, He prepared beforehand. 
at this point, it's, it's like we're just, we just keep eating the cotton candy. That's all we're doing. We're not, we're not doing anything special. We've, we've gotten enough faith for salvation, and we just keep rushing on. And that should, that should encourage us as we, we battle sin. The last thing, and I think that this one is the most important, especially with a college campus close by with the presence of a lot of private men. And that's that belief in election and belief in predestination should come to us more than anything. If you see someone talking about these things in a flippant or a happy manner, they don't believe this. They believe something. They, they, they've missed what these things mean if they talk about them that way. And you should tell them. Or have them talk to me and I'll tell them. If we really grasp these things, it completely removes any ground for boasting on our part. If I know that, that I'm saved because of what God has done for me, I can't say, look at the great eyes. Because I know that I'm not. I hear testimony after testimony after testimony, and I've even given some. That go like this. Living this for the right, and then I got saved. That's not true story. The real story is I was dead in my sin. I was an enemy of God. I was hostile to God. I hated God. And then God saved me. That's the story for all of us. Whether, whether we admit that or not, that's our story, that God saved us when we didn't do anything to deserve his salvation. He reached down from heaven and redeemed me, redeemed you, saved us. And that's important for us to get because when we get that, we know that we don't have anything to brag about. We don't have anything to take credit for. And if we believe these things, if we recognize that, that He redeemed us, He chose us, He saved us, He did the work, what would that cause in you other than humility? I think it would be a humility to be attractive to other people when they see Instead of Christians who have it all figured out, instead of Christians who think that they're saints, instead of Christians who think that they've earned us their salvation, here's a group of people who still need Jesus just as much as they did before they became Christians. I think if people see us like that, they're going to want that. They're going to want to know Him. They're going to want God to save them, not us to save them. That's something we need to get. No matter what we believe about election, no matter what we believe about predestination, we need to get the fact that in Scripture, God is presented as saving Christ. He, he sent Christ to the earth. He sent Christ to the earth before any of us were born. Right? We didn't have anything to do with our choice. He sent Jesus to the earth. He was, was born as a man so he could identify with us in our sin and in our life. He lived a perfect life. He was holy and blameless, even though we're not. Even though he was innocent, he died on the cross of horrible violence and suffering. And he did that to pay the penalty that, that 
I deserve and pay the penalty that you deserve for all of our sin, past, present, and future. He did all of that work. He rose again. He, he proclaimed his victory over sin and death and Satan. And he did all of that. We cannot take any credit for what he's done. We need to understand that. And we need to live that out in a way that is compelling to the world around us. God saved us. As we move and take the Lord's Supper, if, if you're new at BC, this is something that we do every week. We do it every week specifically for the reason that we just talked about. Because we know that it reminds us that Christ has done the work in our behalf. We don't do anything. It reminds us that his, his blood was shed, his body was broken, he actually died. These things we talk about in God's word actually happened in history. And we do that to remind ourselves that they did happen and remind ourselves that we still need what he's done for us today just as we have every single day of our lives in the past. And so as we, as we move to take the Lord's Supper, what's going to happen is I'm going to pray, and then uh, some music will play, and everything's in the back on a table, and just, just whenever you're ready, after taking time to consider your heart before God and consider just how this message connects to your life, feel free to get up individually and go back and take the Lord's Supper and then return to your seat so that this can be a time of worship for all. And just a, a side note on the sermon. If there's anything that uh, I wasn't clear on, anything you have questions about, anything you want to argue about, anything that you just want to talk about, I, I would love to talk to you about it. I know that there's a whole lot of stuff that I couldn't cover because we would have been here all day and I don't want to get there. So if, if you have any questions too, so ask me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Let's pray.
like you made your name known for us. God, we ask that the reality that you have accomplished salvation for us will humble us. We wouldn't take pride in who we are or what we've done, but that we would humbly have confidence in who you are and what you think.